Welcome to the Unveiled Podcast. My name is Peg Peters. We are on a series this summer looking at the Charter Challenge, giving access to psilocybin for end-of-life cancer patients. Uh, we're doing this podcast on behalf of Theracil, a nonprofit out of Victoria. And uh, we've been speaking to experts across Canada, giving the context for why psilocybin uh, should be made legal and uh, in a medical context uh, for end-of-life patients in consultation with a therapist and doctor. And today we have the privilege of talking with Dr. Mark Hayden. Dr. Mark Hayden is Vice President of Business Development at ClearMind Medicine. He's adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia School of Population and Public Health. He's an advisor at SciGen. And uh, when I spoke to him uh, last year, he was the executive director of MAPS Canada, the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies, for 10 years. He's published on the issue of drug control policy and psychedelics in many journals. He is considered one of the top uh, experts when it comes to public education on drug and drug policy. He's been speaking on this for over 30 years. He was awarded the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal for Drug Policy Reform work in 2013. And I sat down to chat with him in his house last year for a documentary I was working on. And so this is an interview that we did in his house. I apologize for my audio. Uh, I had mic'd him and uh, my uh, audio didn't come as clear, but I did the best I could in post-production. I think the quality of the interview is still important enough what we put on here. Um, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Mark Hayden uh, and his insights. I think you're going to find uh, absolutely uh, helpful, profound, shocking at times. Uh, we get into end-of-life anxiety. We get into what his dream for the future is, where he talks about uh, mothers and fathers doing psychedelic trips with their coming-of-age children. This is what he dreams of in the future for marriages, for uh, families. Uh, he has a radical approach, and I found it absolutely beautiful. And I think you're really going to enjoy my conversation today with Mark Hayden. Tell me a little about how you got into this role. I, I know your background is in kind of public policy and drug addiction and these kinds of things. So kind of, yeah, just walk me through a little bit of your, your research background and then kind of how do you arrive into the psychedelic space? Mm -hmm. Well, there were two threads that came together eventually in the world of psychedelics. Thread number one was I worked most of my career as a supervisor in the addiction services Vancouver Coastal Health, and I ran a program helping people to heal from addictions. And I was acutely aware in all the years that I worked there that nobody ever walked in our clinic, had a transformative experience, and walked out going, thank you very much. It never happened. And I also became aware of the healing potential of psychedelics and tried to get my organization to take psychedelic healing seriously and was unsuccessful and eventually wound up quitting there and starting MAPS Canada. But I had a second theme as well. I also worked in the context of public health. So I would publish papers on post-prohibition regulation of all currently illegal drugs through the lens of public health. I would ask the question, when we end prohibition, which we will because it is a failed social policy, what should we replace it with? If we, if we think about a public health model, what does that look like as a way of managing drugs in our society? And I explored that from a whole variety of different angles. And that also fed into my interest in psychedelics because the goal of a public health approach is to maximize the benefits and minimize the harms. 
and I'm keenly interested in doing that with all drugs, and psychedelics are poignant in their offering of maximizing the benefits because of their healing potential. So between those two themes, I was destined to work in the world of psychedelics. So, but how do you, you said you, you began to be aware of the healing potential of psychedelics. Was that from a paper? Was that, what kind of, what, what, what turned that over? Like you were just like, okay, one day you're like, oh, we've got to explore this. What, what's going on? There was one particular person who I knew really well. He was a client of mine in the addiction services, and I had known him for years. In fact, I knew his parents for years, and, and I really cared for this guy because he, he was so, he had so much personal integrity, and his, his family bonds were so strong, and he got worse over the years that he was with us, and he was a, an opiate addict. And he slowly deteriorated under my care to the great distress of his very loving parents. And somehow the words Ibogaine slipped out of my mouth at some point, and he took me seriously, and he went down to Mexico, and he had an Ibogaine experience, and he came back transformed. Of, after years of being on our program and seeing our nurse and our physician, he was on method, he was everything. He had, he had done every part of our program. And he went down and he showed up in my office and he stared me in the eye and he, he said to me words that I had never heard him say. And he said, I'm not an addict anymore. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I've walked out onto the street of my life and I've come to an intersection. And I realized that I could look up the street one way and see the word addiction, or I could look the other way and see the word recovery, and psychedelics for the first time in my life gave me a choice. And I stood at that street corner for a while, and I pondered which way I wanted to go, because for him there were advantages both ways. And he eventually decided that the route he wanted to walk was recovery. And I said, somewhat disbelievingly, I said, so what does that actually mean for you? And he gave me a list of activities that he would do as he walked the path of recovery. And I said, let's talk about that next week. And he came back the next week and he was starting to do it. And the next week he was, and he just, he walked the path of recovery in a way that he had never walked before because he had a choice. And that's what psychedelics gave him. It's, it's, it's that just that ability for the mind to just disconnect from the thoughts and ideas that you'd been, maybe the patterns you'd been stuck with, right? Exactly. And that ability to go, hmm, is this the patterns that I want? Like usually we're so fused with, we're this close to our, our day-to-day decisions in our lives. Is it that psychedelics give our brain this ability? Maybe? So take me into what's happening inside of an addict or someone like this or anyone who has these kinds of experience. What's happening? Why do they get this choice? Beautiful question. Why do they get this choice? So essentially, how we live our lives. Let's just think about how our brain works. We have our conscious mind and we have our unconscious mind. So let's just think about driving a car. When you're driving a car, your conscious mind, what you're actually thinking about is lunch and dinner and the meeting you're about to have and what's on the radio and you're, you're rambling around the, the events of your day in your conscious mind. Your unconscious mind is driving the car. You don't think to yourself, I need to lift my right foot off the gas pedal and put it on the brake pedal. That thought never happens in your conscious mind. It happens automatically. You see something coming up, you see a red light, the car just slows down. You put your foot automatically on the right pedal. So what we have in our unconscious mind is all these tape loops. We have car driving tape loops and we have relationship tape loops and we have all these things that we don't ever notice anymore because they just happen unconsciously. Psychedelics give us access to those tape loops. 
psychedelics reduce the permeability between the conscious and the unconscious mind. So we can dive into our unconscious mind and actually have some understanding of what's in there first and some ability to transform unconscious tape loops that are not working for us. It doesn't seem like we have any other substance that allows us to get that permeability between those. Like SSRIs don't do that. No. You know, so just, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't, like, I think what's unique and novel about these substances is we just don't have anything like it that allows that permeability. That's true. I mean, years of therapy, you know, if you dive into your unconscious mind through years of therapy, you can start to understand yourself. But if you want to access your unconscious mind quickly, there is only one path and it's psychedelics. Tell me about the, as you have these conversations now over the last 10 years or more of your life, what, what's the, what are the top two kind of resistances that people have? Uh, you know, it's gonna be like the 60s, people are gonna just go crazy, and, you know, I mean, I mean, this is all, I'm setting this up for you, but you know, this idea that it's gonna, first of all, you're going to be an addict. Well, even that means you've never taken a psychedelic. They're not addictive. So talk, talk about toxicity, addiction, and what's the general fear around psychedelics? Why, why has that been there on the war on drugs? And then what's shifting in our consciousness now? Mm -hmm. Well, let's go back to why psychedelics were criminalized. Because psychedelics were criminalized in the 60s, not because there was any evidence as to their harm. They were criminalized because there was a backlash against the hippies who were against the Vietnam War. There was a cultural context of the baby boomers growing up and objecting to this war that they didn't want to participate in because they didn't see it as having any value and not part of their culture and they weren't being invaded and they just didn't want to fight. And the powers that be really wanted them to fight and so there was a cultural divide that happened between the baby boomers and the status quo power people and the people in power did what they often do when they are challenged by somebody or some group that they don't like, is they criminalize their drugs. And that's happened repetitively throughout history, and we could explore many examples of that. But in that example, psychedelics were seen as a way of targeting a certain population. And criminalizing their drugs certainly was effective. It, it worked as a, as a social strategy of targeting a population. It worked. It had nothing to do with the risks and benefits of psychedelics. Now, now to be honest with you, the the hippies of the day were not particularly skillful in terms of their use of psychedelics. And there were problems because they didn't have skill. So what was missing is quite frankly an indigenous view. And by that I mean that what was missing is there was no elder leadership. There was no wisdom around context of use. There was no ceremonial structure that brought a philosophical, spiritual, meaning and purpose context to the use of psychedelics. And so because it wasn't rooted in history and culture, it was able to be criminalized. And it probably wouldn't have been able to have been criminalized if it had been woven into the fabric of the culture and the hippies of the day didn't have that knowledge at the time to do that. So they had that weakness and they were targeted and then it became criminalized. If, if we would have listened to indigenous pasts and how they've yes. been used, yes. this, this wouldn't have gone off the rails. Yes. However, it is what it is. It's happened. We now have a new opportunity to yes. keep this in that kind of the, the, the historical framework in which it has emerged throughout history. Yes. So I think that's really fascinating that you're, you're saying that's exactly the, 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 yes. the, 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 the kind of the road we need to stay on. Yes. Now, to some extent, the experience, the globalization of ayahuasca is producing 
this awareness because so many people throughout the world have now experienced ayahuasca ceremonies. Ayahuasca ceremonies have spread throughout the world. And many of them, not all of them, but many of them are done really skillfully. So there's done by a shaman who is a wise elder in the community who understands how to set people up for the experience and to guide the experience in the context of ritual and debrief people appropriately to create a container of safety. And so many, many people have had that with ayahuasca and now they're taking that ceremonial structure and applying it to all over the psychedelics. In fact, quite frankly, they're even applying it to cannabis, which I find absolutely fascinating. What yeah. do you mean? They're like they're saying take cannabis in this kind of way, and it's going to have way better uh, impact for you, or, or yeah. benefit. Yeah, there are now cannabis ceremonies or green ceremonies that provide some kind of religious spiritual context. And if you look at if you look at all drugs in all societies, and you say what what which drugs are beneficial to the society, which drugs are harmful? Often the beneficial ones are the ones that are ritualized in some kind of social context. The pro-social drugs. Yeah, pro-social drugs that have some kind of ritualized structure that provide a container of safety and a context for using the drug. So the the method of using the the, the method of using the substance, the behavior under the influence of the substance, and how how it's debriefed, how it's ended, the whole container of the experience is structured through ritual. And when that happens in a society, a society tends to have a beneficial relationship with the substance. And it doesn't matter what the substance is. And so that experience through the lens of ayahuasca is being transferred to all of the psychedelics and specifically cannabis, which is absolutely fascinating. So there is now a rebirth of the psychedelic experience in Western society where these lessons are being transferred into our society and these structures are being set up by people. So what, is, what, what still is, so if we've seen a shift from that, it's kind of this is a, a safer or healthier framework in which to consume these plants and these, these types of medicines, these entheogens, what are some of the resistance that you're finding now? Because you're on the front edge of public uh, views and, and advocating for MAPS Canada. We'll get into that. But what are some of the arguments that you kind of takes two minutes to kind of disarm that? What are people going, oh, what, what, are, their, what are their typical reactions to this? Well, surprisingly enough, the typical reactions are relatively positive. I, I would, of all of the people that I talk to, um, physicians are probably the most skeptical yet. And reasonably so, because the standard of evidence to prescribe a drug has not yet been achieved with a psychedelic, like a completion of a phase three clinical trial and then available through prescription, which is the standard baseline of a prescription drug. And many physicians aren't willing to accept something until it has been proven at that, that bar of efficacy. And so we have to go there and we will do that and then they will be able to prescribe it. It's also curious because there is a, a disconnect between the medical model and the psychedelic psychotherapy model. And the disconnect is physicians tend to see a drug as something you just give people and then they go and take it at home. And I've had a few physicians so far look at me in disbelief when I say, no, it's psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. There are two things that are equal. There is the psychedelic and then there's the psych psychotherapy. And we need to have both. The psychedelic by itself is not helpful. The therapy by itself is not helpful. The two combined are beautiful. And so physicians have to wrap their head around that particular nuance. And I've actually had one physician recently look at me with disbelief when I said that. In fact, he argued with me, which was fascinating. He said, no, that can't be true. And 
I had to explore it in some depth before he actually believed that it was something you have to do in the context of psychotherapy. And so understanding what that therapy looks like is a challenge for me and my community. Because one of the things that we find when we train therapists is the more educated the therapist is, the more advanced degrees they have, the more unlearning they have to do. Their models that they bring are not helpful. So for complete new therapists, we have to train them. For mature therapists, we have to untrain them. Because get them out of the way of the experience. We have to get them out of the way of the experience. We have to, the model that we work with is the therapist's honors sees and reflects the internal healer of the person who's on the couch. So can you just see somebody else's healer? Is a completely different model from I am the healer and I'm going to help you with my wisdom, insights, and reflections on your drama. And when I give you this insight, you will take it and you will incorporate it and you will be healed. That's not the model of psychotherapy or not the model of psychedelic psychotherapy. The model of psychedelic psychotherapy is I will be a, a neutral witness to your internal healer that will have its insights and I will just be there to reflect what you see and your wisdom. Mm. That's such an interesting concept because I think it's, it really goes at like the concept of where we get knowledge from. Like it's almost like our epistemology in Western medicine is, is, is kind of bracketed out other forms of knowledge, like indigenous ways of knowing, right? That are felt, embodied, somatic, right? And it's, and it's like, whoa, that, we didn't get trained in that. We, we didn't get trained to like find your, you know, find your anxiety inside in your body or listen to that, the fact that your body wants to heal itself. We understand that on a cellular level, we have white blood cells that want to, you cut yourself, it's going to, you don't have to do anything. It's going to heal itself and close the wound. You didn't do anything. Your body is designed to heal itself. What if our mind is like that too? Yes, that is the fundamental belief of psychedelics. And I think that's radical, yes. fascinating, yes. brilliant, beautiful, yes. ancient, all yes. of those things. Yes, the radical belief of psychedelics is the mind can heal itself if given the appropriate insights and support from the psychedelic experience. And you don't need the therapist to give you the insights. The insights will come from the psychedelic. That's a huge shift for many therapists. How safe is, uh, are, is psilocybin? Let's talk about that because that's mm -hmm. kind of our focus. Um, and, and I've seen these charts on like, you know, tobacco, alcohol on one yes. hand of just poison that we just yes. wear shirts that say, mom's going to have wine time at four and we yes. just celebrate the mother who gets hammered. Yes. We think it's hilarious and funny. But imagine if I, a mom wore a shirt, psychedelics every night helps me be a better mother. Yes. You know, people yes. would freak out. So yes. that's on one side. Tell me about just the safety protocol of, of these psychedelic medicines. So the person who's done the greatest work on the ranking of drug harms is David Nutt. That's the graph you're referring to. So the David Nutt's graph on the ranking of drug harms was an amazing piece of work that took him a long time to put together. And he, he ranked all substances, or many substances, on harms for both harms to self and harms to others. So he was looking not just at the physical harms of a substance, but harms in the context of relationships with others and society as a whole. And he put a massive amount of work into this, and what he concluded is our legal drugs are the most harmful. And slowly the harm went down, and you had psychedelics at the far end. 
So really, if you think about how the various harms that you can have from drugs, they usually come down to toxicity, dependency, and behavior. So toxicity is, does it hurt the, the body? Does it hurt the liver? As you take it, is it toxic to the body? And psychedelics are incredibly non-toxic. You know, you can take them, in fact, Albert, Hoff, Albert Hoffman, who invented LSD, argued that LSD was one of the least toxic drugs on the planet. And his argument was actually pretty simple. You can take a thousand times the dosage of a normal dose of LSD, and it won't kill you. Now, a thousand times the dosage of pretty well anything else will kill you. In fact, if you took a thousand times the dosage of water, it will kill you. What's a dosage of water? A, gl a glass. If you tried to drink a thousand glasses of water, you would have a hugely toxic response, and it just might kill you. Oh, anything, yeah. anything. So to, to be able to do that amount of a substance and not die means it's pretty non-toxic. So toxicity is the first thing. Dependency is the second thing. And so I worked in the addiction services for 28 years, and nobody ever walked into any of my offices or any of my therapist's office and said, I can't stop taking LSD. It just can't happen. There are some physiological reasons why you cannot become dependent on, on psychedelics. And then behavior is the last thing. And yes, there are some behavioral problems with LSD and psilocybin and the other psychedelics, but it always comes down to one thing. It's lack of supervision. It's lack of the container of safety. I have all these Google alerts on my computer, and I see all of the problems, all of the media releases every day around the planet on psychedelics, and, and often problems emerge. And when I look at the story, it's always the same thing, which is lack of the container of safety. Set, which is expectation. Setting, which is the environment, and dosage, which is the substance you took, go wrong when things are not skillfully supervised. And so, but when set, setting, and safety issues are carefully managed, you don't have a problem. And only when they aren't carefully managed, when you have lack of supervision, then you have problems. So let's pick it up. You, you've talked about these three, uh, these, these three elements of obviously toxicity, behavior, and, uh, and then the, I think the setting or... Uh, those Dependency, things. toxicity, yeah. and behavior. Yeah. Um, so you look at that, the profile, I mean, these are some of the safest substances, they're non-addictive, and obviously they have these pro-social uh, abilities. And they're, you know, I remember someone saying something like, uh, uh, street drugs like heroin and cocaine are, are escapist. I mean, when you have trauma, you want to escape. You know, Gabor Mate spends a lot of time yes. talking about our need to take these substances to escape the hell in our mind, whereas psychedelics push you inward toward your... So who would want... Who, no one wants to get addicted to that and go inside and by themselves without, you know, the right context. So, yeah, I, yeah, I think there's some... Uh, it's, it's, they're so different, you know, and to group them in the same category is so... Uh, uh, lacks uh, such a, a shallow understanding of how these substances are so dramatically different. Right? Mm -hmm. Let's get into this um, the healing benefit, and particularly, I mean, our, for for the the purpose of this film, we're really looking at end of life anxiety and the potential healing benefits that we've seen in research. Both Dr. Grobe at UCLA, uh, NYU, Johns Hopkins, Roland Griffiths, Bill Richards, these folks. Um, I mean, as you've kind of read this research, is anyone in Canada been doing end of life research on psilocybin? Uh, so just talk to me about some of the, the, the clinical research that's been done, published, and is currently being done on psilocybin for end-of-life anxiety. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the human experience, we are all going to die. That is one of the great truths of our lives. And 
Normally, we don't think about that. We find the ways of just shutting that reality off and living our lives as though we are immortal. We're not. And when that wall comes crashing down and we realize that we are about to die, the experience is not uncommonly anxiety and distress because we get very hooked on the experience of having a body and being alive and, and the idea of losing that is um, very distressing to us as we near the end. And yet it's absolutely and perfectly natural because it happens to everybody. And psychedelics can take us to that place. If you think about often the psychedelic experience is either about spirituality or meaning and purpose to life. Spirituality, meaning and purpose to life. And that's exactly what we need as we're nearing the end of our lives. And so a profound sense of understanding the universe and our relationship to it is what psychedelics give. And the sense of why we've been here on the planet and what we've done with our lives is also needed. And psychedelics bring us those two things that allow us to look at our end with some degree of graciousness and peace. And, and what have you read? Just kind of get me into the, a little bit of the sense that um, that this is being studied, you know, maybe mm -hmm. just mention some of the studies that I, yes. I, I did threw up, um, some yes. of the research that is doing this. What are they finding when they yes. take these double-blind studies? Yes. So the research isn't happening in Canada, but it's happening in the States. And um, the researchers down there are giving people pretty substantial dosages of psilocybin. And they are finding that anxiety goes down dramatically and that people actually are able to embrace the naturalness of death in their lives. And then they're measuring that and they're publishing that, which is amazing to think about. How do you, how do you measure spirituality? Well, they're coming up with this mystical experience questionnaire, the MEQ, and they're able to measure these things now. And they're finding that high scores on the MEQ, high people, people who have a high degree of a mystical experience, tend to relax and embrace their end. That's a fascinating thing, and I think that's um, in, in the, I'll call it the medicalization of psychedelics, which I, again, as part of your uh, argument is, it's a necessary track to get acceptance in you know, clinical trials, stage two, uh, stage three clinical trials. In that medicalization, sometimes there is a resistance to the idea of spirituality at all, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, no, 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 we're too much science here. That, that stuff's for theologians and philosophers. Mm -hmm. and, and can you, and yet I'm like, I'm confront every single person I've talked to. I don't care how many degrees they've had. They just said, "This is about a spiritual connection. It doesn't have to be about religion, yes. but it is about something larger than yourself. And you re realize you're part of something bigger than you. And until we kind of get over our, I don't know, our rationalist kind of insistence that we have to bracket out spirituality because it quote, you know, it doesn't fit our models. We're not going to understand what's going on. Take me into that conversation." with boldness. Why is spirituality the kind of litmus test? From, you put that on maps yesterday. You had a quote on there, and I'm like, good for you. Yeah. You're going right after it. Yes. Talk yes. to me about that. Well, it's, it's interesting to look at w what are the predictors of a successful outcome with most of the research, not all the research, but most of the research with the classical psychedelics, psilocybin, for example. Um, the greatest predictor of success is the degree to which people have a spiritual experience. When people find their maker, they deal with the healing issue that they are trying to achieve. And it doesn't really matter what the issue is, whether they're trying to quit smoking. 
The people that have a spiritual and a mystical experience are more able to quit smoking than the folks that don't. Can you explain that, Mark? Yeah, right. Can I explain that? If you think about addiction, if you, let's go back to the tobacco cessation piece. If you think about the obsessive quality of thinking, the obsessive pattern of thinking that goes along with tobacco addiction, you really need to think about it in a different way. Going and meeting with a maker allows one to come back to this planet and say, I really don't need to have that particular obsessive pattern in my life anymore. That I can let go of. And you can only do that if you've seen the big picture of your life. And so how do you define spiritual experience? Because it's, it, it's, it's not about, uh, you know, oh, Buddhism, Hinduism. It's, it's not these forms, these, these human forms that we've tried to understand God in. It's mm -hmm. something, so how do, you def, how do you personally define these spiritual moments, these experiences? Well, it's interesting how the mystical experience questionnaire defines it. So it's not really my definition. It's, it's how do they measure it? And they measure it based on a series of questions that they ask things like, do, did you experience oceanic boundlessness? Did you experience all was one? And they have a whole list of questions that are about having these kind of transformative moments. And now it's curious because people who are staunch Christians will often subsequently inter interpret those experiences through the lens of Christianity. Staunch Buddhists will find Buddha. Atheists find the whole universe. So people will take the experience and understand it in the light of their own belief systems. But the raw experience, the mystical experience itself, isn't structured in any particular religion. It's structured in the human brain. And the human brain has these experiences and can go to that place and then come back and try to understand it and interpret it. But it has something to do with the entire universe and our relationship to the entire universe. Evolutionary-wise, how did we evolve that way? How did we evolve to this a sense of we need to feel like, how does that help our societies? I'm just trying to think. I mean, I'm, this, is, I don't, this is not going to be the film, but I'm just, <laughs> right. do you know what I mean? Well, I mean, the ability to have mystical and spiritual experiences exists in all human cultures and throughout time. You know, some of our most ancient texts are reflecting on those experiences. Why? We don't know. We have no idea. But it, it seems to be maybe it's actually reality out there. We don't know. Is it rooted in our brain? Is it brain chemistry? Or is it the structure of the universe? And we can only speculate. I, I'm just I'm going on a rabbit trail, but my mind is now going to, like, is there, in the secularization of our society, in, in essence, bracketing out of, of faith and spirituality as kind of a, a secondary element from science, has that led to... Um, uh, maybe a rise in in more mental health issues that we don't feel like we're rooted, we don't feel like we belong, we feel like we're more alone, we don't have this sense of God, we're not a child of the divine, we're not loved. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. is there a connection between those two? Oh, absolutely. Our our society promotes mental illness, and it promotes mental illness because it promotes a disconnection from others, a disconnection from nature, and a reverence for material objects and buying stuff. I mean, that's kind of the root of our society, which is the opposite of psychedelics. Psychedelics are about connections to people, it's about connections to nature, and it's about reflection and healing of self. So the fundamental psychedelic experience is healthy and healing for a society where our current so social values, collecting stuff, objects, often plastic objects that we keep for a while and then we throw away and we buy more plastic objects, that is a very unhealthy root and foundation to have for a society. 
And in the light of the psychedelic experience, you can look at these plastic objects we buy and we can go, that's absolutely and completely ridiculous. What's actually really valuable is love, connections to others, connections to nature, and reflecting on myself and understanding my own behavioral patterns and bringing some health to my brain and my relationships with others. And that's what psychedelics can offer if they're structured skillfully in the context of a therapeutic healing paradigm. So when you, this questionnaire, they're saying the higher you score on this questionnaire, if your experience gave you the sense of the divine beauty of this universe, you're part of it, you're a small but you're connected, the degree that, that you have, the more mystical the experience, the more, the, what, the longer, the long, more longevity it has as a, as a lasting experience in one's life? Or how, what's the correlation there? Well, in, through the lens of research, yeah. the more likely people are to have, the, have an effective outcome. By that I mean, you know, what is being studied, if it's tobacco cessation, if it's end-of-life anxiety, um, the, that variable will be reduced the most when people have spiritual experiences. People are more likely to stop smoking tobacco and more likely to embrace the end of their lives if they have a mystical experience. You know, when you think about then the, the ayahuasca experiences, uh, when you think of the church out of Brazil that has uh, taken these ancient concepts and married it with uh, some form of Christian mysticism and do it in, in this kind of uh, the, that Santo Daime church, right? Um, do you think there'll be a rise? I mean, this is now just speculating. A rise of religious traditions that begin to embrace these healing powers and say, we will, we will be the guardians of this. We will help you heal and grow and connect. Might, might there be Catholic churches, evangelical churches, Buddhist uh, churches that now begin to use these uh, plants, these uh, substances, these fungi as healing uh, part of their, their sacrament? It would be wonderful if some of the traditional churches would embrace, within the context of their own religion, to embrace psychedelics. What would happen if we put the magic back in the Catholic Church? Because they have beautiful ritualistic structures. They just tend to be, have an emptiness of the spiritual experience. So we could bring the spirituality back and have these beautiful religious contexts or, or structures that are very natural to some churches. The, 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 um, ritualistic traditions of some of the ancient churches, I mean the Catholic Church just being one of them, is a good example of something that's relatively empty spiritually that could be infused with this beautiful experience and take the rituals that they have and allow people to have both. I saw John Hopkins, I think it's, they're going to release it maybe in 2021, they're doing like a a study on religious leaders taking psilocybin, high-dose psilocybin, and what happens to these pastors, religious traditional yeah. leaders, you know, what they were from before and then after, how does that change their understanding of their own personal faith? What a fascinating study. It reminds me of the Good Friday experiment in the 60s. Yes. With these grad students, you know? Yes. Fascinating. Have, have you heard any results from that initial study in Johns Hopkins? I, I've heard that it's ongoing, um, but I haven't seen any results. Um, but it makes complete sense. I mean, it, if you look at if you look at people who are walking the religious path, if you look at people who are leaders in a various religion, often they're questioning. 
it is not uncommon for them to have started out really enthusiastically and then slowly as they walk the path, um, it gets weaker for them because they're now doing all the traditions but the experiential part of it is missing for them. And what they need is a psychedelic to allow them to be infused with the sense of spirituality and the belief in their own particular path. Psychedelics offer priests a lot. Think about the, the breaking down of these barriers of, of like exclusion of women, exclusion of, of you know same gender loving relationships. And all these kind of things will will just drift away when you begin to understand the connection we all have as a humanity. I mean, psychedelics could heal so so many religious traditional you know ways of, of being. I, I think mm -hmm. there's huge potential for the next 50, 100 years. You know, on, mm -hmm. on that. I want to dive back into end of life. Um, you know, you you framed it as psilocybin in its very nature seems to be perfect a perfect substance for bringing people up to to look at their their life their life story Françoise says her mentor said uh mushrooms your mushroom experience is uh rehearsal for death mm -hmm. you're going to you're going to confront your own mortality you're going to confront fear and you're going to let it go and you're going to emerge as a person without fear, hmm. you know. So I, I, th I thought it was fascinating that that this this substance, this fungi. And I have to I always listen to Paul. I say, don't call it a plant. It's a fungi. Okay, okay, I get you. It's a natural fungi. Yeah. But you know, so it, it, tell me a little about what what's unique about the experience on on, on psychedelics. I'm going to get into psilocybin particularly that that brings these people that at the end of their life they can begin to deal with regret. Uh, fear of of of, uh, of what's to come, and and just get this sense of peace. You probably have heard lots of stories like this. Tell me about some of that kind of that really resonate. Uh, just don't use a name, but a story of a person maybe at the end of their life that had a, had an experience that was quite mm -hmm. profound for them. Mm -hmm. How did that hit you? Well, if you think about often when we're dying, what do we do? We think about our lives. And we think about what did we do with this particular life? We, had, we were given the gift of human life, we've lived it, and now it's, it's coming to an end. So often the experience is reflection on what did I do right, what did I do wrong? And it's hard to live the perfect human life, so regret is often part of it. Oh, you know, I could have done that better. And so the psychedelic experience allows for some contextualization. It allows us to go back and think about essentially I did the best that I could at the time with the resources that I had at the time, as opposed to I should have done better. And so when we can contextualize it, we can let go of regret. And if we can let go of regret, it's easier to embrace death as we reflect back on our lives. So that's one part of the healing process. And the other part is I am just a very tiny little speck of life in this large universal pattern of living stuff that is immersed on the planet Earth. That kind of big picture view of just one human life that tends to come with the psychedelic experience. You know, we, we see our lives through the context of the universe. And in that context, you die, you live, you die, you live, you know, it's a human life, it comes and goes. You know, there's a much different view that is offered through the psychedelic lens as opposed to, oh my gosh, I have so many regrets, now I'm dying and I've done it wrong and it's going to be awful. Um, when you meet your maker and the maker says, it's okay to go home, things are a little easier. 
beautiful. I mean, that's uh, you know, you, so 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 what we're what we're seeing with Theracil. So Theracil is is really pushing this this charter challenge, right? So mm-hmm. they're 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 really believing that this is a a, a charter of rights and freedoms issue. That you mm-hmm. know, we we have um, we've argued in Canadian law that a person at the end of their life has um, the freedom of person, and we've defined that in Canadian law as if you are given a terminal diagnosis, the government or anyone should not be saying what you can and can't do. If you're dying, we want to give you whatever you can to help manage your pain, your anxiety, whatever, including, obviously, in the beginning, access to medical marijuana. That was the first angle in. If they want to have marijuana to help them with their cancer, no problem. And the, the, the charter said yes, and we, the, the court said yes. Then we said if that person is, is so overwhelmed with pain and anxiety and they want to end their own life with assistance from a physician, our, our Supreme Court said, yeah, that, that, that's a right we think we are going to enshrine and say, yes, you do have access, you should be able to die if you so, so choose. Based on that logic, can you comment on the absurdity of someone yeah. who would say, I, would, I want to consume a mushroom that grows in a forest, yes. I'm going to die anyways, yes. if this helps me ease my pain, and then the next day I kill myself, what do you care as Health Canada? Yes. Can you just talk to me about the absurdity of yes. where we're at in law in Canada yes. and why this is just right for just throwing it out? Yes. The bizarre fact of Canada today is we have legislation, which is the MAID legislation, which allows people to kill themselves. It's the self-suicide process. And so we have that in our legislative reality. People can end their lives legally. And yet you can't legally have a transformative experience that takes away the anxiety at the end of your life. So that doesn't make sense. That is irrational. And so we need to bring our laws into some sense of rational balance, which allows people to have transformative experience, which allows people to have transformative experiences at the end of their lives. And they may still choose to do the suicide thing, the legal suicide route. But they should be able to be transformed to make an informed decision around that decision to end their lives. Yeah, you'd think, I mean, I was asking this to Bruce and he just said, you know, he's had patients, he said that were so convinced they wanted to die. And mm-hmm. he said, well, is it pain? Like, do you need more pain meds? What do you need? Palliative, we're going to do the best we can to manage your pain. And they said, it's not pain, it's here. Yeah. And he said, he said, I, I've yet to meet someone who we can't manage their pain, and, and so that's why they want to die. And he says, so we could, we might be able, again, again, people can make those choices. That's what we said, you're autonomous individual, but wouldn't you want to give them that, that healing sense? And then after which, if you go, yeah, I still, still want to end it because of X, Y, and Z, you know? Fine, then you can, but let's let them have this first step before they make that decision. I think these two go hand in hand. Absolutely. That's brilliant. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, what, what's your what's your thought on um, kind of where where this legislation needs to keep moving, and and particularly as maps, what's the role of Maps Canada in advocating and pushing not just research, but but kind of the public's uh, perception of psychedelics uh, in Canada? Talk to me about what the role of Maps Canada is in this. So, Maps Canada brings the lens of science, and the lens of research, and the lens of evidence um, to. The Canadian public. That's what we do. We are public educators and we are researchers and we talk about psychedelics publicly, but we talk about it through a very specific lens. You know, we talk about it through the lens of evidence. And that's essentially what we do. So 
Maps Canada talks about all the research that's being done around the planet today. We do our own research. We bring that to the Canadian public. We will do our phase three study, which will then legalize MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. And then we will roll out clinics and train therapists and authorize facilities to provide that experience across Canada. So if MDMA is the first one, because it seems to be, I mean, there's, I understand there's lots of reasons. It's not as long a protocol. It's not, you know, six hours. It's, it's uh, easier to manage. But anyway, what's the next, after, let's say, MDMA, maybe 2021 for legal access, you think? 2022. 2022, really, realistically. Yeah. Yes. So what would, would psilocybin might be next on the, depends on how this uh, charter challenge goes that Theracil might be putting together, but. Well, the, looking at, legalization of psychedelics. There are multiple tracks. There are multiple trains on multiple tracks. One of the trains is stage one, two, and three clinical trials, the normal process by which a physician has access to a prescription drug that Health Canada has oversight, and we are on that train. That is primarily the MAPS Canada train, is legalizing through the lens of research. But that's only one train. There's the popular opinion train because cannabis was not legalized because it was proven to be a medicine through a stage one, two, and three clinical trial. Cannabis was legalized because of popular opinion. So slowly what's happening through all of the research and people like Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, the, the public opinion is starting to shift and understanding that these medicines are medicines, they are healing, and as public opinion shifts, sooner or later politicians will step up to the plate and say, you know something, we really need to fundamentally shift how we approach psychedelics. So popular opinion, stage one, two, and three clinical trials are two of the tracks. The third track is happening in the states, which is ballot initiatives. And there are multiple ballot initiatives where people at the, at the voting poll box get to offer their opinions about whether the psychedelics should either be decriminalized or fully legalized. And both of those are moving ahead in different states. And that, again, shifts public opinion. So all of these are combined to produce one, through one path or another, legal access to psychedelics. Whether it's, again, with Health Canada oversight or some politician just saying, we actually just need to embrace these things in our society because enough people support them. What gets you most excited about this, uh, this journey you've been on? You put a lot of time into this, Mark. This has been your life battle over the last probably 10, 15 years. What, what's, I came in here and one of your first things is the wind's, wind's in our favor. You, mm -hmm. There's a sense of buoyance. You're, you're kind of excited. Mm -hmm. What's getting you so excited, Mark? Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting to reflect on my whole career. Because when I started talking about drug policy issues decades ago and talking about how drug policy, the, the criminalization of drugs had absolutely no evidence to support it. In fact, all of the evidence was we needed to have a different approach. Criminalization does not work. It costs us a huge amount of money and it's ineffective. It doesn't protect our children. When I first started saying that in public a few decades ago, I had people who were viscerally angry with me. They would sit in the front row and shake because I was speaking the taboo. I was breaking the taboo. I was, I was fundamentally cracking a wall that existed in our society and I would have people so angry with me they would just shake in the front row that I could say that. 
And I would listen to them and I would calmly just say, here's the evidence, here's the evidence, here's the evidence. And then eventually I started talking about the maximization of benefits and the minimization of harms of all currently illegal drugs. And psychedelics just emerged as a natural substance to talk about how to maximize the benefits. And so there's been a very natural flow from my drug policy work to where I am today. And, it, and nobody's showing up at my, the, the audiences that I have now, there's nobody sitting in the front row shaking in anger at me. There are now people that really want to kind of understand the nuances. You know, they really want to see where this is going and understand how we can maximize the benefits. In fact, interestingly enough, I had an absolutely dream come true email relatively recently. The, um, the provincial ministry of health wants to talk to me about how to integrate psychedelics into the healthcare system which is an absolutely crucial question because legalizing psychedelics is not enough. We need to ask the next question is how do we do that within the context of our current healthcare system? You know, does, does BC Medical pay for it? Does insurance, provincial healthcare programs, do they, that, does that insurance pay for these services? Yes or no? How would it pay for it? What services would it pay for? Those are absolutely vital questions. How would we integrate psychedelics into a healthcare system? Would we put them in addictions treatment programs? Would we put them in mental health outpatient programs? How would it actually work? Those are crucial questions to ask because if we get it wrong, we will destroy a huge amount of work that we've done. We really need to be thoughtful and we need to have the right people offering the right structure at the right time. We need to do assessments of people. We need to set people up in the right way. If we just believe that these are medicines that you can give people to take home, we will completely and absolutely blow this opportunity. We need to set people up for the experience. We need to set people up for the experience. We need to screen people. We need to provide appropriate context for the experience and we need to provide integration services afterwards. We need to support people all the way through. And if we just take the traditional medical model, we will make a huge mistake. Wow, I'm just gonna reset that, but that's, I, what would this look like? I, I remember ta I, I was talking to Dr. Erica Dickinson from Saskatchewan, uh, you know, History of Medicine, and she was at a really great interview with her and she said, you know, if you think about it, Canada was doing, the first ones doing some psychedelic research in the 50s in Saskatchewan yes. at Weyburn Hospital. Yeah. Yes. So she said, and the impetus was, which is a really interesting question, Tommy Douglas, you know, yes. CCF, yes. national yes. health care, yes. his yes. model was yeah. long-term patient care for yes. 30 years in a mental hospital. We can't sustain that. We can't pay for that. It's way too costly. Yes. We need interventions that are quicker, more radical, because it has to be, we have to be able to provide it for everyone, not just for the rich white people that can go to Costa Rica for $10,000 and have a, a great ayahuasca trip with, you know, Goop Lab. You know, yes. I'll just be honest with you, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Goop Lab is a, a niche for yes. people, I get yes. it. They live in this area, I get it. But we've got to help the people in the downtown east side. We have to help the people in 100 Mile House yes. who are, you know. Yes. And so we need a policy, a way of funding and paying for these kinds of things that are not just for the rich. So I love that that's the shift that's going on. I think that's mm -hmm. a... It's such a beautiful question, and, I, and mm -hmm. I think you're you're well positioned to begin to answer that. That's yes. that's really exciting. So, in order to persuade a politician that psychedelics are useful, you need to be able to, to bring the money argument. So, the money argument has a number of different threads. Thread number one is: Is this cheaper to provide this transformative experience in the long run? Because often the psychedelic experience itself and setting people up is actually relatively labor intensive. So, you need to be able to compare 
the, the cost of long-term multi-decade care versus short-term intensive expensive care in the short run. And that, that cost analysis is something I've actually just done, and I have a wonderful slide that I'm hoping to take to the Ministry of Health that looks at different models of therapy. It looks at traditional psychedelic, no wrong, sorry. It looks at traditional psychotherapy, long-term psychotherapy that takes decades. And it compares it to current psychiatry and medical management. And it looks at the MAPS protocol, which is all laid out. We know exactly how many hours are involved because it's in the protocol. And then it looks, and that has two therapists. And then you take the same psychedelic psychotherapy model with one therapist, and then you provide psychedelic experiences in groups. And you map that all out, and it's relatively easy numbers to come up with, and then it becomes compelling. So if you actually look at the numbers of traditional treatments versus psychedelic models, um, the psychedelic models become cheaper. That's, I think Erica said, that's going to win. That's going to be the argument that moves the needle. As much as you know, we might say, yes. oh, that's really neat. Uh, these are great spiritual experiences. At the end of the day, money talks. And, yes. and, and for a system that is just scraping to find, I mean, look at the system. We're, right now, in the midst of COVID, how many billions of dollars we are spending on healthcare, let alone the mental health issues yes. that are going to come out from this. But if you can make an argument financially that it's in the best interest of our healthcare system to fund these expensive yes. therapies in the beginning, which we learn this when it comes to early childhood intervention on, uh, on reading and writing. We know that if we can gauge these kids between the ages of three and five, the, 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 the rate of dropouts is, is like, you know, it, it stops it by, what was it, four times or something later on. Like, in, intervene now and you're going to save later. Yes. So I love that you're doing yes. that argument. I think yes. brilliant, Mark. That's yes. so cool. Yes. Uh, is there something that, as you look at this kind of trajectory of this story, is there something you would say, here's some advice for me as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, what would you say? Make sure you get these parts of the story peg. I just I, mean, I mm -hmm. want to get that from you. Well, if I think about the future, so where, where is psychedelics going to go in the future? Because right now what we're talking about is healing, end-of-life anxiety, addictions treatment, depression, the, the, the various indications that people are treating through the lens of psychedelics is where we are today. Where will we be in the future? So the future will be not just having a mental health diagnosis. So what do we need as people? One of the things we need is better relationships. You know, we need to improve our relationships with loved ones, we need to improve our relationships with friends and family, and psychedelics offer us that opportunity as well. The future benefit that psychedelics can have on relationships has not even begun to be tapped and really even talked about yet because we haven't measured that yet, but we, but we need to. There's one piece of research happening in Canada that's looking at PTSD treatment in the context of relationship. And so that's, that's the first one on the planet that's starting to measure relationship issues in the context of the psychedelic experience. We need to go there big time. We need to really explore which psychedelics, in what context, help relationships in what ways. Because what I observe is that different psychedelics offer different relationship experiences. Let me go through a list. So something like MDMA. MDMA gives you an experience of love. And it's quite touchy-feely. So people often want to touch and connect through physicality on the MDMA experience. 
so that is both hugely beneficial and somewhat challenging in some of the therapeutic experiences. But at the end of the day, in a couple's context, it takes people to a very loving, physical kind of place, which can be advantageous. Think about that for couples therapy. Yes. Like the ability to maybe stave off a massive divorce rates where people yes. can find a connect and communicate. Like yes. Just for that, not just, th- you know, you're, you're, what you're saying is the benefits that we could get is not just for like, oh, trauma, mm-hmm. but what about just helping a couple yes. relate to each other? Yes. But there are other medicines as well. So another medicine that is useful is 3-MMC, 3-methylmethcathinone, which is again an empathogen. It's kind of like MDMA, but it's not colored. It's not colored with love. So if MDMA is I love you, 3-MMC is this is who I am, who are you? So from a, if a couple want to sit down and talk and resolve a conflict, I would suggest that 3-MMC is probably a better medicine because it's more conversational and a little less touchy-feely. Now, there are also other medicines that you can take in the context of a couple. If you give a couple a profound spiritual experience together, something like LSD or psilocybin, they're probably not going to be talking during the experience, but maybe occasionally they'll look each other in the eye and they'll see their universal self in the other person. And when they eventually emerge, and reintegrate it together, they will feel a profound sense of accomplishment as they've had this journey somewhat in parallel experience, but they've had it together and they, t- they talk about it afterwards as being one of the most profound experiences of their lives. And that can be also very bonding. So those three medicines offer bonding for couples in completely different ways. And we need to really be thoughtful. You know, what do we want to offer a couple? Do we want to offer them a touchy-feely loving experience? Do we want to have a conversational experience? Or do we want to offer them a spiritual experience where they debrief later? All offer something in terms of their coupledness, but they're different. And so we need to have those nuances as well as we evolve our understanding of how psychedelics work. What's a 2CP? Uh, I've just been 2C- reading a 2CB? 2CB, yeah. Yes. What is that? So 2CB is one of the Shulgin drugs. It was invented by Alexander Shulgin. Um, it's a bit like short-acting LSD that's quite physical. So there are many uh, new psychoactive substances that offer sort of nuances over the, the classics. So the new, the new psychoactives, if I think about Generation 2, so, so generation one psychedelics tend to be, let's take LSD for an example. LSD is a generation one. So it's very long acting and it has some disadvantages. It, it's kind of disorienting of the ego, um, but it does have a profound sense of spirituality. So a generation two is a more tailored to what you want. Maybe you want more shorter acting, maybe you want something that's a little more empathogenic, not as disorienting of the ego, maybe you don't want that spiritual experience, maybe you want more conversational experiences. So the, de- the second generation of psychedelics kind of tailor the psychedelic experience to what you're actually looking for. So it's so interesting because as you open this door, it's not a one size fits all. And it's like, there is so much research to be done here on the potential healing benefits of this whole, you know, pharmacy of, 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 of psychoactive uh, drugs that, that could be really helpful for our planet. And you're saying, we need to have, be adults, and we need to talk about this and be open about it and see how each of these might have different benefits for, for, for use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, so imagine a world, I guess, I mean, 
project ten years from now, Mark, and 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 you're kind of at the end of your your you know your your research and your your maps. What would good look like for a, a therapist and and uh, or or for just the average Canadian? What what does good look like where you want to arrive in the next five to ten years? So how would we define a successful outcome? A successful outcome in all of the work, my life work, a successful outcome for my life work means that the psychedelic experience is available. It's available for people with specific diagnoses in the context of healing of that diagnosis. It's also available for people without diagnoses who would like to have a, a rich psychedelic experience, a rich spiritual experience in their lives, and it would be available in specific context where wise elder leadership would be available to structure the context of the experience. And it would be available for couples who wanted to do certain behavior that was not supervised. Because sometimes what couples do under the influence of the psychedelic is probably not something they want something to watch. So the, the wise ability to allow couples to have experiences together, and they're wise enough to be able to use it skillfully where set, setting, and dosage are managed. Now one of the questions that I find quite challenging to answer is should youth have the ability to access, to access these experiences? And I would, I would argue yes under some conditions. So I wrote a paper a while ago on how psychedelics should be legalized. And the piece of the puzzle that was the hardest piece to come up with is the question, should youth be able to access the psychedelic experience? And we looked at a number of different models. We looked at the indigenous models, and some indigenous societies, like um, ayahuasca, for instance, don't really think about age. You know, pregnant women show up, women who are nursing show up, toddlers show up. It's just done in the family context, and, and it's not really about youth or babies. It's just anybody can have the experience. The peyote folks do provide the experience when a young boy becomes a man or a young girl becomes a woman, you know, at maturity, at, at puberty, then they get invited into the TP and to participate as they mature into their adult role. We also looked at adult supervision, and we looked at adult supervision of alcohol, and there are many states that say that an adult can supervise a young person at the dinner table and give them alcohol, and it's completely legal if adult is supervising. We also looked at healthcare systems. And healthcare services are provided for young folks before they are legally an adult if they understand what they're asking for. So if a young woman walks into her doctor, or a young girl walks into her doctor and says, I want to be on the birth control pill, and she's not legally an adult, the physician can prescribe the birth control without consulting the parent if the young woman knows what she's asking for and is able to have an intelligent discussion around it. So we put all of that knowledge together and we said that yes, young people should be able to access a psychedelic experience. They should at first be encouraged to involve their parents and bring the family context to the process because it's beautiful for families to have this experience together. But if that really doesn't work, you know, and the parents really aren't engaged in this discussion, and the young person would like to have an experience, say yes they can, if they understand what they're asking for, and it's provided within the context of an adult who knows how to structure the experience for a youth. So it essentially they'd be a specialist. And they'd be a, special, a wise elder who is a specialist in using psychedelics for youth, and providing the context for them in a safe way. Yes, that should be available. I, I look forward to this being legal yes. and these these experiences being the norm for families. Yes, you know, 
Oh, yeah, this you, stuff moves me so much, man. Oh. One of the strongest experiences you can have to build a relationship between a parent and a child is for them to do a psychedelic experience together. And having multiple parents and multiple children in the same room where the experience is that of love is a profound experience. That is, uh, that's another, I want to do a documentary on that. That, that is beautiful. Uh, mm -hmm. I think there's some huge potential there on almost like a rite of passage for mm -hmm. young people, you know? Mm -hmm. A rite of passage is you're going to connect with your elder and your elder is going to be your parent. Mm -hmm. and you're going to do this in a, in a state where all your defenses are down, all your fears and your reactivity's down. And you can feel that love and bond. Oh, it's unreal. Mm -hmm. I, I love it. I, I, I love what you're doing and I love the direction you're going, Mark. It's so, yes. it's so cool. So I, I appreciate your kind of, your, your wisdom there is to say, hey, there's so much to explore here, but we can't let it get too medicalized. We need to let this be mm -hmm. in the context in which they've existed for, you know, historically. We need to bring our elders, bring our parents, bring these people, these loved ones into these experiences and, mm -hmm. and build these connections, right? Mm -hmm. It's interesting just to look at the path forward because we need to start by medicalizing them and then so we need to put them in a very restrictive box which is the medical box but then we need to take them out of the medical box so we need to medicalize psychedelics first and then we need to move to a different context that allows people to have the experience without just having a diagnosis and for healthy building of relationships, healthy building of, of parent-child relationships, of loving relationships between adults, that's where we need to go. And so we need to, we also need to use it to connect with nature. One of the great tragedies of our modern day is people are becoming increasingly disconnected from the natural world around them. And the consequences of that are profound. As we buy stuff and buy more plastic and throw it in the ocean, we lose our connection to the environment. And one of the pieces of evidence is psychedelics are incredibly helpful for nature relatedness. When you allow people to have a psychedelic experiences in the great outdoors and they see themselves as being part of nature, it shifts how they see plastic. Because plastic does not belong in the ocean. And you viscerally understand that when you see yourself as part of nature. And you don't viscerally understand that as you see yourself as being separate from nature. And so if you're separate from nature, you can pollute the ocean because it's not part of you. If you're part of nature, you can't. And so psychedelics allow people to bond to nature and quite frankly, our whole planet is suffering because we lack that bond. And psychedelics can bring that bond back and then that can manifest as quite frankly, more environmentally friendly health policy or as more environmentally friendly planet policies. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think about that, the healing of relationships, families, children, our planet, um, mm -hmm. how we think about commerce, how we make, you know, what we do with our time, our life. Mm -hmm. Man, the, 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 the downline is just, it's almost mm -hmm. infinite. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, this resurgence, what it could do in our culture and society. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, wow. No, this is great, Mark. Thank you so much. One more, okay, one more. Okay, good. I love it, man. One if you've got thing. it, I'm in. So let, let's just explore for a second our, how we treat youth in high school around drugs. So the ultimate worst case scenario is the D.A.R.E. program. So the D.A.R.E. program is a fear-based soundbite program that basically says be afraid of drugs and be afraid of drug users. It's a very fracturing 
program because the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed kids in the front row are taught to be afraid of the kids in the back row that are not bright-eyed, not bushy-tailed, and are the drug users in the class. So it's fracturing, divisive, and fear-laden, and not based in evidence and truth. That is the worst thing that we can do in terms of drug education. Really what we need to do is teach youth about wise use of drugs and how drugs can be used in a way that is completely destructive or completely constructive. What would happen if we allowed kids to experience drugs at their best? Psychedelics are an example of that. So wise eldership that, would, that was woven into a high school experience in the context of a drug educational experience would be brilliant drug education. That's drug education at its best. That is, it's brilliant, and I, I think that's an incredible. It's, it's out there, but it makes so much sense. You yeah. know, uh, what we're doing is not working. No, it's, 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 it's not just fracturing, but it creates people, it puts them underground. Mm -hmm. Drug use goes underground, yes. and they're not even they're not experimenting properly with the right kind of drugs. Mm -hmm. like, don't do these. If you're gonna do them, do these. Doing in this context. Any questions? Like you know what yes. I mean? Like that's the. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah our mm -hmm. current prohibitionist model makes drug use clandestine, and when youth are criminalized for doing drug use, they do it by themselves without any wise leadership from adults who are skillful in managing these experiences. They don't know what they're doing because they don't have a context for doing it, and their experiences tend to either be, well, either neutral, bad, sometimes positive, but certainly not as positive as they could be, and we lose the benefits of being able to actually show youth how wise leadership can provide a context for the drug using experience that allows them to have positive experiences and not have all the problematic experiences that they have through the context of prohibition. Thank you so much, Mark, for this conversation. It's been so, I've learned so much and I love your passion. Like, you, it's not just an academic thing for you. It's coming from here and I can feel it in the room and it shows up here. So thank you. You're welcome. What a beautiful, what a beautiful conversation. Thanks, Mark. Yes. That was great.